I didn't look up what the, what Gene and Roger thought of this movie, but I'm gonna guess it was two thumbs down. I could I could check my notes really quick, but uh, it was a one point five, I think, as star wise at least for for Roger for Ebert. Yeah, that that sounds about right. But um, let me see what they what they said together. So do you have like a database of uh, of all of these? Yes. Wonderful. The December twelfth, nineteen ninety eight episode of the show. Two thumbs down. Damn. Yes. I actually did watch the video of this. Maybe we'll put a clip in or something, too. They also gave two thumbs down to Jack Frost. Oh, harsh critics. And two thumbs up to Shakespeare in Love and a split decision on Star Trek Insurrection with Siskel voting thumbs up. Roger voting thumbs down. Little time capsule there. Quite an auspicious uh, episode here. Boy, that is a list of movies that like takes you straight to 1998, that's for sure. And uh, it is useful kind of to put us in that kind of a context. Yes, that is the world in which this strange movie was released. Jack Frost. Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the film podcast that gazes into the cinematic abyss to see if it also gazes into us. I am Mark Batavio. And I'm Seth Troyer. And today we are joined by the great critic, author, and editor of ScreenCrush.com, Matt Singer. Matt's going to help us continue our month of high-profile misfires, disasters, or perhaps misunderstood masterpieces. Next up is one of the strangest and most foolhardy cinematic experiments ever released by a major studio. That is Gus Van Zandt's 1998 version of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. It's not a reboot, a reimagining, a sequel, or even, to use a term coined by our guest, a legacy sequel, but an almost shot-for-shot remake using the same script as the 1960 classic. It just shows that even great directors go a little mad sometimes. Mm-mm-mm. All right, now that that terrible joke is out of the way, uh, I am thrilled oh, to welcome. I guess it was a joke. I didn't. It went right over my head. It's kind of good a joke. With jokes, yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I am thrilled to welcome our special guest, Matt Singer. He is the critic and managing editor of ScreenCrush.com. You may have also encountered his writing in The Village Voice, IndieWire, and The Dissolve or seen him on IFC News, CBS This Morning Saturday, and Ebert Presents at the Movies. In addition to all that, he is the author of Marvel's Spider-Man, From Amazing to Spectacular, and an upcoming book I am personally very excited for, which has an incredible title, Matt, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us, assuming that that is the the final title. Uh, well, it it might be in flux a little bit, but it's it is definitely still called Opposable Thumbs, and then there'll be a subtitle. I mean, something like the story of Siskel and Ebert. But yeah, it's a book all about Siskel and Ebert. And at the time of this recording, I mean, you have you kind of just fi- recently finished writing it? Um, I have finished the manuscript. Yeah, my editor has it, so I'm sure there'll be a little more work on the writing. Uh, you know, tweaks here and there, but yes, I did. I did uh, submit a manuscript a couple of weeks ago for for the book. So, so <laughs> I, I know though you had uh, invited me to come on, and I was like, well, I would be happy to, but I'm literally like writing every <laughs> every night 
hours upon hours. So this is a it's a delight to uh to to have a little break from that and uh talk about this uh delightful question mark movie but uh yeah yeah i but uh yeah so the yeah the book is done and hopefully it'll come out uh sometime next fall that's the plan i don't have a specific date yet but uh that's that's the plan anyway well i'm glad unwatchables and gus van zandt could provide you with this vacation yes yeah odd vacation so yeah before we start i mean i know you, you probably don't want to maybe talk too much about the book we're a little bit away from it actually being released but um never too early to wet people's appetites i guess um i know ebert and especially siskel and ebert's show meant a whole lot to me when i was first getting into film and especially film criticism I'm assuming that that's where you're coming from. Was this something, you know, a, the sh- a show you watched weekly or any kind of specific story about your relationship with specifically Siskel and Ebert's show? Absolutely. I mean, yes, it was it was the uh, the thing that really got me first interested in in not just film criticism, but movies, really. I mean, certainly I watched movies as a kid, but um, <clears throat> that was that was the show that really uh I don't know something about that show, man. It it seems like for a lot of people it was this way, where it just it, something about two guys kind of having a conversation about movies and sometimes a quite heated conversation. Uh, really, uh, it sparked a lot of people's imaginations. And um, yeah, I used to watch it. I mean, I don't know if it was every week, but certainly I tried to every week. I mean, I uh, I was born in 1980. So I really was watching uh, in the early nineties was when I was really obsessed with the show. And I grew up in New Jersey where, you know, we were getting the local like Fox, New York stations and the show was all syndicated. It was very hard to find. It would, it would be on one week. It would be on at seven o'clock on a Saturday night and the next week would be gone and you would have to try to find it again. It would get moved around. And for a long time, it was like late at night, you know, it was like Sunday at midnight was like a time slot. I remember it being. And that was after, you know, when we're talking 1990, 1991, that's way after my bedtime as like a 10, 11 year old. So the thing that I would do, and I've, I've written this before, um, it is a hundred percent true is like, you know, I would go, it would be my bedtime at whatever, 10 o'clock, something like that at nine, 10 o'clock good night. And I would, I would lay in bed with the lights off, but stay awake, wait until my parents went to bed, turned all the lights off. And then you know, I had a little clock or whatever. And when I would see it was time for the show, I would turn it back on and I would turn the volume <laughs> to like one, like literally like one or two <laughs> on the television. And I would sit there in the dark and quiet and just hope they didn't yell at each other too much so that, you know, they might alert <laughs> my parents next in the room next door that I was, uh, you know, illicitly watching Siskel and Ebert. You know, this was the the dark secret that I was hiding from them. Which is, Those I think, says all. Yeah, I think it says a whole lot about me. But uh, yeah, that that is true. So yeah, that was the kind of you know that was sort of where it all started for me was late night, you know, sne- sneaking episodes of <laughs> Siskel and Ebert. And yeah, I kept watching and watching, and then you know, um, then I got very into yeah Rogers writing um, in college basically because that was. When I went to college, that was the first time I had high-speed internet. That was also around, I don't know what year they started, but that was around when he started publishing all of his reviews online every week. Mm. You know, So Fridays, Sun-Times, whatever the website was, you know, Sun-Times.com or Sun-Times.com slash Ebert, whatever it was. Every Friday, that was like a ritual with me and my buddies in the dorm, our, my fellow nerds. You know, I had a whole group of movie nerds. And we would, you know, everyone, we would read the uh, 
reviews of the week and talk about them. And yeah, that was uh, definitely very, very formative. So that certainly was uh, a big part of the reason I wanted to yeah, write a book for sure. Oh, yeah. I remember those the Fridays when everything would drop on the homepage and there'd be a whole whole new crop of reviews from him. And uh, when I started watching the show, he was doing it with Roper. Um, and then luckily they started to post everything online. And you're so right about the time slot always changing and it being different in all the different markets. And it's just so great now that you can go on YouTube and pretty much just find anything uh, that they did, as far as I know. And uh, so people can still keep checking it out, uh, whether they're interested in the movies or they just want to see the chemistry that these two had because they would get so adversarial uh, in really real ways where you could tell that that they were like mad at each other sometimes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, uh, yes, they had a very, I mean, sometimes they, I mean, obviously they agreed a lot, but it was sort of, of they had, you know, famously when they did not agree, uh, that that was that was some of where the TV magic was was in some of those reviews where they they disagreed and uh, yes there's certainly uh, you know the book is about them it's about uh, it's about the show and certainly there is a part where um, there's a little about sort of their famous uh, disagreements for sure that is that is definitely discussed but also I mean there's it's a, there's so much I mean it's a it's an entire book but um, that is that is one aspect but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, and it is cool that a lot of it is on YouTube. Not everything is up there, but um, there's also a great website if you are looking for stuff and you don't see it on YouTube. There's a website, a fan, you know, it's not official, but it, it's it's got a lot of stuff. Um, it's I think just siskel-ebert.org, I believe is the mm-hmm. website, it's something like that, and uh, just like a fan's website, um, and it's got episodes from every era of the show and from as you were saying from uh you know the ebert and roper era and even beyond that so yeah it's cool that a lot of it is it it still lives online and um it's a nice you know it's like that i mean obviously they're they're unfortunately not around anymore but from like the mid 70s to the late 90s there's you know you can sort of find they reviewed almost everything and so you know for that era it's kind of cool to go and you know if you after you see something to go, I wonder what, what they thought. And you can usually find it, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I can only imagine then the road that took you to actually being associated with the Roger Ebert presents at the movies show, which I I remember reading a piece that you wrote on one of the anniversaries of his death about meeting him for the uh, first time. Right, 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 right. Oh, wow. So I didn't know if you wanted to share anything about that or if you had any, you know, significant interactions after that also. Yes, I bet. You're right. I have written about that. So yeah, that was, like I said, I mean, I, as I hopefully conveyed, I mean, I was a gigantic super fan of, of Siskel and Ebert and Roger Ebert, uh, his writing as well, you know, Gene, um, you know, and I'm not, that's not a slight on Gene, like his, his reviews just weren't really online in the same way that Rogers were. And, uh, you know, he passed away very sadly, like as a very young man in 1999, you know, he's like 53 years old. So I just, it was, it, it wasn't like, Oh, I, I like Roger better. And, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't really have a preference. I liked them both, but it was just that, you know, Gene, so sadly passed away, but Roger, you know, kept working and writing and, and, you know, you read his writing, you're like, Oh man, this is fantastic. So, um, yeah, very much stayed a fan of his all through the years through college. And I, you know, I went to grad school for film studies and was still a very much a reader all that time. And then I started doing, I got lucky and, you know, got to work in television a little bit at IFC for a while. 
And so sometimes when, um, you know, these things would come up, I might get to audition. And I did get to audition for a role on, yeah, it was called Ebert Presents at the Movies. This was the very last version of the show that was on PBS. Um, This was after, you know, Roger, he had lost his ability to speak, but he was still involved with the show. He was kind of like the producer or the managing editor, I think was his title. And, um, you know, they had uh, two hosts was Christy Lemire and Ignati Vishnevetsky were the hosts. And um, they also had contributing, what they called contributing critics who would do like guest segments. And that was what I ended up doing on the show. So the audition that you're talking about, like I went and I auditioned and um, basically after I did the audition, uh, Roger's wife, Chaz, who was a producer on the show and is a wonderful person. She was like, come on, I'll bring you up to meet Roger. And he was in like a little room. He was, he was sort of watching the auditions um, in this little room on like a monitor, they had like a TV monitor set up and I went in and he was in there. He was like sitting in like his like recliner chair or whatever. And he was watching, but he was also, he had his computer. And when I walked in and, uh, you know, I had absolutely no idea what to say. And I do not remember what I said exactly, but I'm sure it was completely incoherent and awkward. And, uh, but he was like pointing very insistently at his computer. And I looked over and it was, he was, it was Blake Edwards, the, um, filmmaker had died and he was writing his uh the obituary for him while he was also supervising these um the um auditions so he was like he was uh multitasking and uh, that definitely made a pr- an impression on me that he wasn't just like watching although he was also watching but he wasn't you know he was also at the same time he's like pounding away on this uh obituary which you can still find and um, i think when i wrote that piece i went and found it and i was like this is so effing good. And he wrote it like while he had like one eyeball on a a monitor while he's supervising these auditions. It's sort of slightly infuriating (laughs) that he could write something so good while also doing other things. But I guess, you know, he was a, he was certainly, you don't need me to tell you he was a very talented person, but yeah, that was, uh, that's my story of meeting him. And then I did, you know, meet him a few other times. And because I did work on the show, I got to interact with him quite a bit. Um, quite a bit but a bunch of times and uh yeah that was really cool he would give feedback on my segments and that was awesome it was i mean it was really like a dream come true or i mean i never frankly it was more than that because i never thought i would freaking work with him i mean it right. was absurd but yeah it was great he was and he was very encouraging and nice and funny and yeah it was awesome yeah that is such a great story i love that so uh yeah i'm i'm super looking forward to the book when it gets to be around that time too, we'll let everybody know when the you know release date is and everything too in future episodes. So the reason that we're here today uh, is because for uh, this the month of November we are tackling uh, basically misfires, flops, high profile um, disasters, and our last episode covered basically the would be blockbuster area of that where we talked about cats and Space Jam Two. Um, those kind of are in their own category where they were, uh, you know, meant to make a ton of money, lost a lot of money, everybody hated them, and arguably were made by hacks, for a kind of less generous word. And that is not the case with the Psycho remake, because with this, we are talking about a director who has made several great films and is very renowned, who is Gus Van Zandt. Mm. And this this was a big... Swing for the fences, you could perhaps say at the time. His passion project, it sounded like. Yes. It sounded like he was bothering them to do it for years, I guess. And then it took him finally 
doing goodwill hunting for them to finally say yes. Absolutely. This was what he expended his capital on yeah. from having a huge hit. This was, this was his blank check movie in the parlance of another uh, podcast, basically, yeah. Right. <laughs> Whatever the kids are into. This is what he cashed it in on, yeah. It's kind of an, an absurd, but that's... That's what he wanted. Yeah, I mean, even at the time, I don't think anybody would have had any idea that this this would be what he was interested in. See, I would assume, like, looking at this movie, if I had to guess, he had to, he was forced to make this movie, and then they would say, okay, now you can make your gay street kid movie, My Own Private Idaho, that doesn't make any sense to us, or whatever. Um, but instead, it's actually, <laughs> he did My Own Private Idaho before this, uh, and this is like his passion thing. It's really weird. It's interesting that this is where it all wound up. And that's one of my favorite movies, too. I absolutely adore um, that. And Drugstore Cowboy's great. I love what a lot of the more experimental stuff that he wound up doing later on in his career. But this does like stick out as sort of like uh, emergence of the two Gusses, I guess. That's what I always kind of observed about his filmography. There are the Goodwill Hunting uh, movies that are, you know, kind of Oscar baity that that are just regular movies that a lot of people like. And then there are like Elephant and Last Days that are these like non-linear, strange, like low budget indie films. Uh, and this one is kind of uh, emergence because on one hand, you think it's like absolutely like a big studio, like this is a money grab. But at the same time, it's like made in this, which we'll get into this sort of bizarre way. Um. <laughs> I would actually argue that there's three Van Sants. Um, you know, oh. he's the guy who's made the movies that you mentioned and, you know, Jerry and Paranoid Park. And then the kind of middle of the road prestige pictures like, you know, Milk and the Goodwill Hunting he was just following up. And then I don't, he's, man, he has a more than a few disasters in his filmography. And I think maybe the third Van Zant is somebody even going back to something really early in his career, like even Cowgirls Get the Blues, and then all the way to now when not too long ago he released The Sea of Trees, which had a really spectacularly bad word of mouth around it when it premiered. I really want to do that one on the podcast, yeah. So there is such a gulf between the great and the terrible Van Zant movies, and I think Psycho has a little bit of uh, <laughs> shades of all of those. Well, you said also he does a lot of experimental movies. I mean, this, in a way, is an experimental movie. I mean, it's a very... It looks like a mainstream movie, and it you know you can describe it in a mainstream way, where it's, well, it's a remake of one of the handful of most famous movies ever made. But on the other hand, it's like, I mean, who would do this except as a strange sort of experiment to do a shot by shot remake of, uh, of one of the most famous movies ever made and to do it in this way. I mean, the way I see it is as a, as an experiment, perhaps a failed experiment, but I can't really conceptualize it in any other terms because like you said, it's like, it's not that they begged him to remake Psycho. Or he had a take on Psycho where I'm going to do it different. Like his take was, what if we remake the most famous movie ever made? And it's not quite shot for shot. There are some changes, but it's it's close at times. It's more line for line because yes. the dialogue is so it's very similar other than a few very minor changes like the amount of money that's stolen. You know, it's 400,000 instead of 40,000 or whatever it is. There's there's very minor changes, but it. You know, the thing that I was really thinking about when I was watching it this time, and I saw I 
remember seeing this movie in 1998 and I've seen it once or twice uh, since then. And, and in a few interesting um, scenarios we could talk about, I once saw it projected on top of the original Psycho, Psycho which was kind of interesting. Oh my. <laughs> oh, was that like a Steven Soderbergh thing? I don't know Wasn't who made it. In charge I don't, of that? I don't know who made it, but it's. I guess that's possible. But I was at a party in grad school, maybe the, the, the artsiest slash fartsiest party I ever went to. And at this party, um, someone was projecting the two psychos. I don't know if it was like on a disc or they set it up, to be honest with you. I don't even know. But I sat and watched a good like 30, 40 minutes of it, kind of like, interesting yeah that it was you know that you could watch them sort of side by side but in any event like what i what really struck me watching it this time was that what we what what psycho is so famous for besides the fact obviously that you know the shower scene is like number one but then number two um is the fact and i guess i'm just going to say it as if this is not a spoiler because it's the movie is you know 60 years old now just that you know the what seems like the main character Marion gets killed 40 minutes in and at the time this was a huge shock to people it blew people's minds and like you know that uh you know they they went way out of their way to make sure that no one knew about this you know like you can google or go on youtube and find like um what's it called like i don't know like promotional materials videos it wasn't video mm-hmm. then but like promotional films kind of like a trailer sort of halfway between a press kit and a trailer where like hitchcock is explaining how to show the movie and why don't don't reveal the secrets and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was a huge part of it. So now what are we going to do? We're going to re like, we're going to make the most famous surprise movie of all time, the most famous twist movie of all time and just redo it, but not, and not change it. It's such a strange, I mean, that's, that's why I can only kind of think of it as an experimental film. You know, it's like, who would think like, let's make a movie that, blew people's minds and shocked them. And they were never the same after that and do it exactly the same. That's really going to like, you know, I was thinking how he could have theoretically, if he wanted to be really faithful to the spirit of psycho, like the way to do it would not have been to remake it shot for shot, but to do something radically different, you know, like 40 minutes in, instead of Marion getting killed in the shower, she kills Norman Bates or something. You see what I'm saying? Sure. Like a wild twist that in a way would have been more faithful to the concept of psycho than what he made, you know? Yeah. Or exploring a lot of the threads that are implied, right? Because there's sure. I remember a, a lot of people, it looked like uh, I was reading that they heard that Gus is going to do psycho. So like they were really excited. I think, uh, partially because they were assuming that there would be at least a gay subtext or something like that going on because he's a he was a famous uh queer filmmaker at this point and i i would admit like if i was there waiting for this movie i would be kind of excited about that too and that's definitely an angle i mean also exploring like Bates as a crossdresser or transsexual or what, whatever the word is uh, for what's what you would explore there that is going on with his whole relationship to dressing up like his mother and becoming his mother. It's kind of amazing that that was not something that was latched onto. Instead, it was right. a very cons- <laughs> debatably conservative approach. Yeah, no, they, they, there's very, I, I mean, there's a couple of things here or there he changed, you know, and there's like, I mean, I remember at the time the scandalous 
and it wasn't really that controversial or scandalous, but the, you know, the idea that uh, you can, you can hear Norman sort of uh, pleasuring himself uh, while, you know, looking, spying on Marion, that right. was a change. And that was like, <gasps> you know, for, I guess to some people that was perhaps uh, slightly edgier. And there's a few things like, I didn't quite, I didn't remember that like in the beginning of the movie, you see Viggo Mortensen's uh, tush. Mm-hmm. He's got to get naked in all the movies. That's a little, that's a little different. And then like, there's some, there's some there's some uh, suggestiveness in that early scene with, uh, you know, Anne Hayes is kind of like, you know, they're talking about whatever they're saying. And she says, I'll lick the stamps, lick the stamps. I wrote that down. And she and she looks she glances down at his, uh, you know, his nude uh, a body. And so there's it's a little more suggestive. Yeah. And of course, there's like a shot of Anne Hayes naked at the end of the shower scene. But really, like you're saying, there is a lot you could have done if you made a less uh, direct remake um, with this material, even in 1998, much less watching it now, which is a very strange added layer because this was the quote unquote modern psycho. And it looks in some ways, it looks almost more dated than the original movie. Again, another reason why it's like, I can't think of it. I can't really conceive of it in any way, except as to look at it as a somewhat misguided, arguably failed, but in some ways still kind of interesting experiment. Yeah, I think that's the key word. Almost like the point of it is for us to talk about it, maybe even more than watch it. And because it doesn't make sense in a commercial way, you know, by this point, there had been like three psycho sequels by the time this came out. There, but there hadn't been like, I remember there was a re, uh, like TV movie remake of Rear Window with Christopher Reeves in it. <laughs> that was a much more typical remake. And even artistically, it seems like. Van Sant didn't really have a vision for this so much as just, you know, I wonder what would happen. I wonder what that would look like. And in that sense, it's like a film school exercise. Um, or in another, it's, you know, kind of like watching a community theater production of a script, you know, really well with other people stepping into the roles. Right. See, that's what came to mind for me. Yes, especially with the quality of some of the acting. I think that's kind of the issue, yeah. It's hard to tell if the acting is bad or if the scene is not working or if it is because it's a perfectly capable actor like Viggo Mortensen saying things that were written for a 1960s audience for a 1960s actor to say yeah the the main thing is is it just forces you to keep thinking about the original so it, it's not something that exists on its own really that yeah, it would be really bizarre to watch this without having seen the original psycho and god forbid you ever do because that would be a really strange way to get into that film yeah but it does remind me uh it kind of i can continue to see through lines with my own private idaho in this which in my own private idaho there is this I forget if it's King Henry VIII or something, but it's a sh- part of it is them doing like a a reboot of Henry VIII, the Shakespeare play. They're like saying these sort of like they're pontificating in Shakespeare ways, but it's they're like modern street kids or something. And this feels like that. It's only with a movie script, which like we're very used to this tradition now of like Baz Luhrmann doing more Romeo and Juliet in like an updated fashion, but still saying the lines that like, obviously you wouldn't say in 1990s LA. Yeah. And I mean, just again, for anyone listening, maybe who hasn't seen it, the main thing is that it's not exactly shot for shot. A lot of it is trying to do that, but it is in color. It updates the setting from 1960 to 1998. 
uh, in very minor ways, really. They did get Joseph Stefano, who wrote the original Psycho, to make those changes, even though there's really not that many. So it's interesting they did that. Uh, but they also got Danny Elfman to recreate Bernard Herrmann's score, uh, which in my opinion is one of the best film scores Maybe my favorite. I mean, it just carries so much weight throughout the first half of that movie with building tension. Yeah, if not this taxi driver, you know? Yeah, the other ones would probably be by him, too, as far as the, you know, the best ones. But it just doesn't really seem to commit one way or the other because it doesn't, it's not an exact shot-for-shot remake. There are changes, but not enough, really, to be significant. So it's in this weird Middle ground, almost like he messed up his own experiment because he threw too much stuff in there. I don't know. Is there anything you, like Matt, that you thought was interesting that he does in this movie? I guess, um, I mean, there's a lot of things that are interesting. Uh, Are there things that are successful? That I'm not so sure. But I forget who mentioned it. But someone said, you know, like, and I felt the exact same way. It's like watching this movie, you're constantly struck by the overwhelming urge to, like, turn on the old movie. Well, is this how Hitchcock did it? Is this, where did he put the camera? Where did, you know, like, how did he do this? How does this, you know what I mean? And and in some cases it might be identical and in some cases it might not. And it, I don't know that necessarily like Van Zandt's choices were always like, well, I'm going to do it exactly like him or I'm going to do it differently on purpose in this one moment. You know what I mean? Like, I don't necessarily know that it was that deliberate and intentional um, a thing. I mean, from what I research I was doing and reading some stuff. It it does seem like certainly, obviously he was trying to recreate certain moments. And then in other times he would say, well, this doesn't look right anyway. So let's just do what we want. You know what I mean? Like there was only so like, there was only so far they could kind of take it in that shot for shot vein. But to me, one of the things that was interesting and you were sort of talking about it is like one of the differences is, you know, it opens in basically the same way, you know, with this shot of the phoenix kind of skyline and in the hitchcock version you know it's like it's like a series of shots that are getting closer and closer through dissolves until he goes inside this window and that's where we find marion and her boyfriend and he, he supposedly wanted it to be one continuous shot all the way from like way back zooming in all the way all the way all the way and it wasn't physically possible at the time and one of the things that uh van zant was able to do was to like actually like do what Hitchcock wanted to do. So we see like, it's like a helicopter shot that seems to like start far back from the city, zoom in until it goes into this one window. And that's where we meet the characters and the scene begins. But the, the one big difference besides the fact that it's in color and we're seeing one steady shot instead of dissolves is the, the, there's like uh, over the screen, there are um, title cards, you know, Friday, December 11th, 2.43 PM. Those are identical between the movies, but the Hitchcock version doesn't list a year. The Gus Van Zandt version very pointedly says 1998, you know, as if to say this is happening now when the movie came out, you know, like the movie actually came out like around, it was December, 1998. So the, you know, they like placed it in the immediate moment that the movie was released. And yet very little of this movie feels like modern in any way, you know, like, the characters do not dress for the most part in modern clothes. Supposedly like the um, costume designer thought they were making a period remake and so showed up with a lot of clothes that would have been appropriate to the early 1960s, or at least would have seemed kind of, you know, old fashioned retro and Gus Van Zandt 
was like, well, we're making a modern movie, but I like these clothes, so let's just go with it. <laughs> and so what you have is like most of the characters look like totally out of time. You know, Norman Bates is like walking around in like a corduroy blazer and, and slacks. You know, uh, Arbogast, the private detective, is wearing like an old-timey suit and a fedora. You know, like yeah. he looks like somebody out of the 1940s. Forget about the 1960s. Vigo's a cowboy. Vigo, yeah. Vigo's wearing like these cowboy <laughs> shirts, which maybe like 10 years later were kind of in fashion in Austin. Like if he lived in Austin, maybe, but like not in 1998. You can't just really update it just by keeping the same script and setting it in the present tense. Right. And I think part of it is strange because as great as a lot of the dialogue is in Psycho, you know, people in movies in the 60s spoke differently than people in the movies did in the late 90s. And so it has this really weird alien kind of effect to it. And I think another huge part of it is that he, Van Zandt never got all of these actors on the same page. Like they're all trying different things. And I, I'm going to, I want to save talking about Anne Haitian and Vince Vaughn since those are such significant roles. And I think the most like just miscast in this but everyone else is full of world-class actors. So on one hand, you have um, Chad Everett doing a really excellent impression of the rich guy that she steals the money from. Like, he sounds just like the guy in the original movie. You have uh, Bill Macy, who is talking like he's in a movie in the 60s in this kind of stylized way. And then you have Julianne Moore, like you were saying, Matt. And I would put uh, Viggo Mortensen in there, too, who make who are so much more naturalistic than everybody else and suddenly it does seem plausibly like maybe a 90s movie when there's scenes just between the two of them and it's it is fascinating um we also have philip baker hall show up who i think would have made a good arbogast actually and maybe that's just me flashing to his you know library detective on seinfeld but i could totally see him (laughs) delivering those lines in the same way uh, Julianne Moore too, where she seems to me being like deliberately trying to make this a more headstrong character. And she is delivering the same lines, but modulating them in a way that is making her seem like a much stronger personality and a more modern personality. And I think that might make it the most successful performance if you could, you know, call it that maybe not tone wise, but just as far as not seeming so strange. And that that goes to the point where one of the things that Van Zandt changes is when Norman is finally being tackled and revealed at the end, she gets a good like kick into his face, which is definitely not something that Vera Miles did. Right. She's not just the damsel in distress, right? That's that is another change he made for sure. Yeah. But I do I want to talk about Anne Haitian and Vince Vaughn and I, a lot about Vince Vaughn. So why don't we get Anne Haitian out of the way first? Um, because I, I feel like she's doing something very different than uh, Janet Lee, who I, I really love that performance in the original Psycho. She's a very kind of impassive character that doesn't let you into a lot of her psychology. You kind of have sure. to assume it um, to the point where Hitchcock doesn't even show us her making the decision to steal the money. It just kind of cuts to her packing up with it. And I really love that about the movie. And and Hayes, to me, I think the biggest difference is she's very constantly like indicating and kind of overplaying things. Um, except, you know, her motivating, you know, weariness or unhappiness. Mm-hmm. But it's like when that he pulls that money out, she practically like licks her lips yeah. on the, the screen, like staring at it. So I don't know, where do you guys fall with her? She's a little campy. I do feel that. I like her look, though. I just find her, like, I like watching her. I like her hair. I don't know. I like following her. There was something that I did enjoy about her being cast in this role. I did read 
that she had never seen Psycho before she signed up for the role and had only seen it like once by the time of shooting. I watched this like making of feature that was, I guess, on the E! channel at one point on YouTube, which was really weird and interesting and had a bunch of like behind the scenes footage of a lot of what was going on, which was like, it seemed like same day, like, well, should it be modern or should it be not modern? Should I wear this hat? Is that too like flashy now? And she is, she seemed very into the improvisational aspect of it and like playing with the layers of modern versus uh, classic. I guess one of her ideas was that like Vigo was trying to make her, his, his character was trying to make her modern and she was trying to stay classic or something. And so there was like some weird thought process going on. Like with, I think like with a lot of these actors trying to be on their, they were all on their own page, it seemed. Uh, so it's, it was interesting to at least get a window in there. But yeah, I don't know how great of a job she does just like brass tacks acting though yeah you know i honestly don't have a huge problem with her in the in the movie i think she delivers a totally fine performance i mean what you're describing where it's you know she's asking questions and it's it's not even clear what how modern or retro or vintage she's supposed to be or uh i mean i i feel that energy in the movie i don't necessarily know that that's her fault i would say that's more of a fault Mm -hmm. of the direction perhaps than the fault of the actor and I think she's very watchable in this movie. And um, I like her with Viggo Mortensen in that early scene. Um, they are a little uh, flirty. I think that scene totally works. I think she's she's good all through her part of the movie, actually. And I mean, yes, she is. She's um, she's a little bigger, uh, a little broader in her reactions um, to certain things. But she also doesn't have a lot of dialogue. So you know, she's acting. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, I, you know, right. Whenever I watch it, I don't sit there and go, she is wrong for this part. I think she's fine. I just don't think that again, that I don't know that the movie necessarily knows what it's doing all the time. You know what I mean? So I, I have a hard time asking the same, like of her, like, uh, for consistency, or a clear vision, because I, I don't know that the movie provided her one or the movie uh, has one overall um, in terms of, you know, if you want to then segue into Vince Vaughn, like I perfectly think, cast, right? Yeah, I think, well, <laughs> oh, there yeah. is sort of a strange kind of like it's like a doubly strange thing, because I don't that one I don't think is a great performance. And that one, it he does seem to I, I don't I don't want to say he's doing an impression of Anthony Perkins because he's not. But he does seem to have like tried to replicate some of his energy and his posture and his, you know, just like his physicality. He's dressed kind of like him. He eats the candy. He has the kind of nervous laughter. Um, he he doesn't seem that far removed f- for me. You know, I, you, you mentioned that Anne Haitian said she had never seen Psycho before the, being cast and then watched it like one time. Like, it, she does not feel like she's beholden to Janet Lee or trying to, like, copy her. I would be surprised to hear that Vince Vaughn had never seen Psycho and had no idea what Anthony Perkins did. Because his, his performance, in some ways, seems totally sort of indebted to it and in sort of trying to tiptoe around it or trying to give his version of it. Now, I think the part that's sort of unfair now is that, like, Vince Vaughn now is is a, a like insane choice for this part, like just based on who he is as a persona now, you know, like 
He's the comedy guy. He's the wedding crashers guy. He's the old school guy. Like you would never cast the Vince Vaughn of even like five years later in this part. But like in 1998, I don't know that it made sense, but you were like, well, he was, he was the swingers guy, but also that was like an indie movie, you know? And he had done a, he was doing a couple of other, you know, he hadn't quite found his mainstream comedy lane that he then stuck in for the rest of his career. So at the time it wasn't that, crazy you know he he had just done the lost world where he's not doing like a vince vaughn thing at all um and i just remember thinking oh okay it's vince vaughn like i i didn't think that the casting when i heard it was ludicrous now when i watched the movie i didn't necessarily think he did a great job but i do think in hindsight it's even it's it's even harder to sort of watch his performance because it's very surreal now to see vince vaughn as norman bates whereas i think in 1998 it was not surreal. It might not have been a great performance. You might have sat there and gone, this isn't working for me. But I don't think people would have gone, how did they wind up casting this guy? Which now I think if you, if like a young person went in cold to this, they would be like, I'm sorry, who's playing Norman Bates? Yeah, it is um, something that I observed in the making of feature that you can tell that he is very nervous. Uh There's like a few different scenes in the making of like behind the scenes thing where he's like asking a lot of questions. He's like asking the most questions. And he like when he's interviewed, he's always talking about how like he's just I'm just still not comfortable. Like he's still just like I think he just knows that he's out of this depth a little bit, which, yeah, that's crazy. That's like just he's just a kind of a relative unknown at this point, not a big deal actor and probably knows his limitations as far as his range and things and it is like one of the most famous performances of all time uh it's kind of like asking an unknown to just just go be orson wells in the citizen kane remake you know or something like just go do that and feel very confident while you do it that you're making the right decisions you know that will please people it just had to have been a nightmare i do think it's a bizarre choice regardless of how we feel about him now he does his like body type seems very different just like i just would not see him in a lineup and be like that's norman it feels like norman and again like only if you were going to follow that thread of making norman particularly different like if they were if this was where they were going to jump off from a, a new point with the character but they don't so all you are left with is just putting him in this bad position where he's has to just do a Norman impersonation essentially poorly because he's not he's not even close to what that guy is like, even just in his physical makeup, you know? Yeah, this might be a, another instance where it's more of Van Sant's fault uh, than his because yes. you can tell that he's trying, but there is a discomfort there that only partially plays into the character because just physically, like you were saying, you have Anthony Perkins who – always stands out to me in Psycho as this lanky, squirmy kind of guy. And there's this big contrast between him and the actor who's playing Sam when they have a scene together, almost like you're watching two, like a more modern style of acting toward against a more old fashioned one in just a really fascinating way to me. And, you know, Vince Vaughn is just does have this kind of like big kind of frat boy type uh, build. And just when you're casting Norman Bates, you know, it shouldn't be, she shouldn't look like he played football in high school and that he needs to shave twice a day. 
Like, right. He got beat he up just, by Vince Vaughn in high school. Right. <laughs> Vince Vaughn is more naturally like a Sam. If you're right. Gonna ca- you know what I mean? Like if you're going to cast him in, as anything, you probably you go, oh, yeah, he could play Sam. You know, like he would sort of fit into that role. You could see that. Maybe he's not like the ruggedly handsome Sam, but like, you know, he, you know, physically, like you're saying, I think, yeah, he probably does fit a little more into that uh physical mold yeah i think it's a reckless kind of choice uh and an instance of gus kind of dropping the ball a little bit and just being a little like sure i feel i feel like that's how gus operates on his more like indie films or more experimental films where it's just like more of a new way of approach of just like whoever's in the room like let's get him sure i know that guy let's just let's just get him in here and it kind of felt like that with vince where it's just like maybe he just was like talking to vince one day and was like be in the psycho remake be norman bates with that like mischievous gus smile that he has which again like throughout all the making of that i watched he had this like shit-eating grin on his face the whole time of this like very like wily like punk i'm doing a punk rock thing aren't i which sometimes i'm like into it and then other times i'm like yeah but you're playing with people's careers here and people's money and things like i will say and i mean like i i was sort of half defending vince vaughn that you know that long rambling answer i do want to say that like the i I think the thing that he screws up that I would wouldn't necessarily blame on Van Zandt and would blame on him is just the thing that Anthony Perkins has that's so great in Psycho is yes he seems a little odd but he also is so likable and sweet when you first meet him there's this like you understand why Marion would have dinner with this guy in his creepy uh owl you know uh taxidermy room like he doesn't initially come off as creepy or weird in any major way, he seems like a, like this very likable, sad, lonely man. Like he has a sweetness to him, which is important, especially in this, you know, in the second half of the movie where he becomes sort of the, you know, for a while, he's like the main character. Um, and you have to kind of feel something for this guy who, you know, we, you're at least ideally, you're not supposed to think he killed her. You think he's cleaning up after his mother who he loves. And so you're supposed to, you know, he's kind of almost supposed to be one of those classic Hitchcock wrong man figures, you know, who's sort of trapped in a terrible situation that he can't get out of. Um, Vince Vaughn doesn't have any of that. Like he immediately to me comes across as this super Mondo creep. Like he just has this weird, like, unsettling energy and then you know within seconds of getting her in that back room he starts kind of like he he starts like going off in these weird directions and he gets angry and he looks intimidating and yeah it's like I, to me if it was like if i was marion crane i forget about going back to my room and taking a shower i'm getting in the car and i'm leaving that hotel right now you know what i mean like i wouldn't l- hang around to let somebody uh stab me in the shower So, like, that's the part that I think he screws up, is that he just comes across as way too weird and creepy and, like, overtly suggestive of being, if not a killer, then definitely a grade A, like, creepazoid. And I just don't think that that's the, I think that's the choice, the acting choice that kind of, that does not work uh, for for Norman, that I think he really kind of, kind of messed up. And the perfect case in point for that is, the most notorious change, I think, in the movie that we've already mentioned, where he takes off the um, the painting on the wall and is staring at her in the bathroom and is very obviously masturbating, which 
just, I can't help but wonder what the hell like Van Sant was thinking about that because it's taking something that in the you know in the original movie is very sinister and suggestive, almost mysterious. Like you're thinking about, oh, why is this here? Why you know does he do this with everybody? What is he looking for? You know, obviously it's implying some things, but in this movie it's just replaced by some creepy guy jacking off. <laughs> like, and uh, that that really does not help the character. It doesn't help the performance. And I, I still wonder why that particular experiment of all the little experiments in here <laughs> had to be thrown in. I don't really have a good answer for that. Yeah, why do that and then stop? Right. You know, why that be the? Why is that the only thing? Yeah, and I mean, like the the the, the 1960 version of him, uh, you know, without all the very explicit stuff, you know, implies all of that without making it explicit. And I think when you when you make it explicit, you sort of like it, it takes the audience, it puts them at a remove because we can all sort of think about, well, what would I do in this situation? Would I be a peeping Tom? But then when you layer in like, oh yeah, I would be watching this woman and jerking off. It's just like, it immediately makes it, you know, he's, he's, you know, Hitchcock was like playing with the voyeuristic aspect of cinema that we're always sort of looking at people. You know, there's that, you know, the, the movie is kind of the peephole, you know what I mean? Like every movie is that way. We're always kind of peeping on the people on the screen. And there's so many examples of that throughout all of his movies from Weird Window to, um, I mean, I mean, there's a million of them, Dial M for Murder. There's so many examples of like that sort of, you know, voyeuristic energy um, in a way that I think taps into something subliminal in people's minds. But then when you make it about a guy, you know, whacking it, it's like that is like does the opposite instead of sort of subliminally speaking to that like lizard part of our brain that enjoys watching people it's like it takes it to this place of like i don't think i would hope most of us cannot quite relate to that sort of behavior yes and it it just sort of immediately sort of take instead of like kind of bringing you into this strange alluring disturbing moment it has the opposite effect it takes you out of the moment It, Mm -hmm. it, it it suggests well this person is nothing like me i would never do anything like this and it kind of puts a, I don't know, it, it again, when you're making a shot by shot thing, it has this interesting effect of having the opposite sort of that moment has the like almost opposite psychological effect on the audience that the Hitchcock version has, even though it is still basically the same with just that one quite important and notable change and addition. Well, now I'm imagining a version of Rear Window that where Jimmy Stewart's literally just getting off. Yep. And like looking at his neighbors and it's like, that's re- that really is missing the point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, the other big flourish that Gus adds here that seems like one of the more obvious visual flourishes is these surreal, quote unquote, images that he throws in every once in a while, like when William H. Macy gets killed, and there's a couple other instances. Well, there's a few. There's a few in the shower scene too. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just like, like a, a a shot of a field. There's like handheld footage or something. A woman like looking very like sexy and mysterious, and then with a blindfold on. There's a cow. The cow in the road. Yeah, when Arbogast is killed. It's really not. Even that much. It's just like three flashes. It's not even like a strobing really effect going on. It's not even that surreal. It just like takes you out of it. I felt that was also like this thing that could have been interesting, but it's just like 
I don't know, it seemed like lazy, like at the last minute, something to throw in there. There's a lot of those in here where they just felt like in the editing room, he was just like, I don't know, we got to just try something. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I've already said I think this movie is interesting and it's, you know, like I, uh, I and, you know, I, I watched it a bunch of times and I don't never I never really like walk away thinking I wasted my time. Mm-mm. But I do think that the the those the things you're spe- speaking about specifically, these like very brief inserts of these random images into the murder scenes, I just think is dumb. Because, like, again, you've made this thing that's so close to the original that to make these tiny little changes and to to do it so briefly, it's like, what what is the point? Why make something so close and then deviate in these in these moments in such minor ways that it's like of, of all the things we know, like the things that people know visually so well is the shower scene, like of all the things to copy uh and not change like to me if those are the moments that if you're gonna be really faithful like that's the stuff that people are looking at and yeah why is there like a naked lady and a cow when arbogast gets killed like it doesn't (laughs) it just doesn't make any sense and it doesn't really add anything the other thing that i always that I, i i think of when you watch you know especially the shower scene in this movie is, you know, uh, you know, the original movie is black and white. Famously, they use chocolate syrup in the, in the, uh, in the shower and all that. The, the, the thing that color does in this is it, it makes it at least to me, maybe this is me, maybe this is my hangups. It makes it so much harder for me to buy that Norman Bates could clean this up and get away with it because there's all this blood. I think they, not only is it red, it's like there's more of it in this scene, you know what I mean, than in the Hitchcock version. And there's blood everywhere. And he's like mopping it up with this dingy mop that looks like it's 100 years old. He, there's DNA all over that room. <laughs> it would take about four seconds for any like anyone to like just notice like, I think there's, you know, and not only there, uh, there's pieces of paper that he doesn't, you know, flush down. And there's something about black and white I don't know if it's the dreamlike quality of it, if it's just the 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 fact that it's not quite as detailed because it's not in color. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be very detailed in terms of the sharpness, the crispness. But there's something very, it's a lot easier for me watching them to believe that Norman Bates could like clean up this room perfectly and get away with it in black and white. I've never had a problem with that. Watching this movie in color, when you see how much blood there is and how he's trying to clean it up, I'm just going, this is, you know, this is ridiculous. This guy is not Dexter. He is not, this is not a pristine crime scene here. This is like, you know, I feel like, um, you know, Arbogast walking around that room in three seconds would have seen, you know, there's got to be blood all over that room. It's like, it's absurd. So that's another thing that in this version and adding color, I always think that that, um, I don't know, it's a change. It's a negative change for me. It's like, it, it makes it. Uh, it, it makes it it makes it more uh, real in a way, and when it becomes more real, it becomes less believable. If that makes any sense, for sure. And yeah, besides just the fact that forensics would have you know been a big change in the forty years between this movie, right? It's all that's a good point too, right? It's thirty eight years later, right? We have yeah, exactly. There's uh, I don't know how many more years it was before like the CSI franchise started up, but certainly we're close enough that somebody could have definitely uh, found some trace of Marion in that room, no question. What were you? kind of are speaking on is what's 
the tension is going on in the movie that I think is maybe the most interesting part of it, that it illuminates that, I don't know, one wonders if Psycho originally is like capital R realism uh, and what probably it is the confusing thing that you would come up against with remaking shot for shot Psycho. This proves that it is kind of like you said, like opera, like it feels dreamy. Uh, and I do feel that way, even in more mundane scenes other than the shower scene. Not that it's like a surreal movie, the original Psycho or this movie, but they do feel, they do both feel like if we're being honest, or if I'm at least being honest, like they're in some sort of dreamy place, some sort of non-reality, uh, which I think a lot of old older movies have that uh, sort of feeling that they're taking place in a liminal spot. Uh, there was some sort of suspension of reality to make whatever uh, sort of fantastical thing able to occur uh, for the plot to occur, right? I think that's what's interesting about this. It illuminates that uh, with mixed results, of course. Well, yeah, and to talk about the clash of just filmmaking, you know, techniques between the eras, a great example, I think, is when William H. Macy gets killed because he reproduces this, you know, awkward kind of composite shot of him falling backwards down the stairs, which stands out a little bit in the original, but it's just, it feels of a piece, whereas it just looks silly here in this context. And especially mm-hmm. when he ends up putting in those little subliminal inserts while he's dying too. And all all of a sudden, it's like in one scene, he's he's showing us this this awkward replication of something that doesn't translate while at the same time adding in something new. And uh, th- that is a particularly messy <laughs> example. As far as things that he could have, and this is going to what you were saying, Matt, about how the crime scene like just plays differently. The scene at the end with the psychiatrist, which is infamous from the original film. A lot of people, myself included, think that's like the one big flaw of the original Psycho is we get this long, drawn-out explanation about exactly what's going on. And yes. Van Sant again passes up an opportunity maybe to mess with that a little bit, either improve it or change the language or just get rid of it or something. Um, and instead, even though we have Robert Forster doing it, who's a good actor, uh, it's still, he just allows it to remain in there. And it seemed like another wasted opportunity to me. And the way the mixing works in that scene, there's like this weird cowboy dream guitar playing over it that like does not match the rest of the score, which is all trying to sound like Bernard Herman. It's like this guitar uh, like composition. And it feels strangely mixed like it's almost trying to dwarf what the guy is saying almost like they knew that this scene maybe didn't even work all that well in the hitchcock one and now they're like oh my god what do we do it almost felt like they were like dropping this song on and hoping that you would just like listen to the guitar instead of this long monologue yeah i mean i i know that that scene is very you know notorious amongst no pun intended, amongst Hitchcock fans is just, you know, not working or being so stilted and expository. I, you know, I never really had a huge problem with it, um, seeing the original Psycho. I just think it, I, again, I just think it is a little funny that when you give the chance to remake this, you know, you get to uh, remake it, that don't change the one part that some people don't like about the movie. Like that would have been like you're saying would have been a chance to maybe do something with that. Throw in some flashbacks, throw in some, I don't know, shots of the murders, you know, do anything. I mean, or don't include it at all, potentially. 
Um, mm-hmm. But but they chose mm-hmm. to play that's those scenes fairly again very faithfully to at least the, the script of those scenes. I don't think they're shot visually exactly the same, but um, you know the the explanation of Norman's psychosis or whatever his condition, whatever you want to call it, is basically the same, and the backstory is basically the same, and um, the way the the material is explained is the same, and yet. You know, as I'm sitting here thinking, it's like he doesn't change any of that. He does mostly shot for shot or line for line. And yet what's one of the other things that he changes? He changes the look of the psycho house, which is like the most famous house in the history of movies. Yeah. It's like to this just kind of like bland looking house. It's like weird brick. That may also be like when you were talking about before with like Gus Van Zandt's kind of like I'm doing something punk rock like. That's the that that maybe that's that energy. I don't know, but that's such a strange choice to be like, we're gonna make psycho now. We're gonna do it almost exactly. We're gonna follow the script. We're gonna follow the plot beats. We're gonna do the shower scene. We're gonna do the ending that nobody likes, but we're gonna change the most famous, you know, the psycho house ain't gonna look like that. Gonna look like a boring old house that you would never even look twice at. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. People are going to flip. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. Yeah. And, you know, I do want to give a little shout out to the TV series Bates Motel. Um, I don't know if anyone else here has watched that. It's kind of an uneven show, but I think has some really high highs in it along the way. And it does exactly what we're talking about where, you know, it, I mean, it does update you know, to a modern time. But it also does in the final season bring in uh, Rihanna as Marion Crane. And it does end up setting it up and then subverting it in a way that you are not expecting after all that time. And that right. seems like a, a great example of a way that you could do that without just thumbing your nose at the audience for the sake of a surprise. Like you could maybe actually mm-hmm. go somewhere productive with it. Um, even I think on the audio commentary for this, Van Sant like even stumbles upon a better idea, which they're talking about the original book that Psycho was based on by Robert Bloch, which – it's very, very different from Hitchcock's version. Norman Bates is this overweight, really strange, gross kind of, well, psycho. And th- there's all kinds of differences as well, the way the story is told and everything. And at one point, Van Sant is talking about it and said, hey, you know what? Maybe it would have been more interesting uh, to have just adapted the book more faithfully. <laughs> Maybe I'll go back and do that. And it just shows you like, there's an idea, you know, there's an idea at least. There's an idea that you could... Uh, be consistent with maybe. Right. I will say, I mean, one thing in this movie's favor is, you know, you mentioned Bates Motel and I, you know, I had forgotten that that show existed. I watched, I think I watched the pilot and maybe an episode or two, but I certainly didn't stick with oh, it. Oh, not a good pilot, <laughs> but yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> That's why I didn't stick with it. Yeah, it gets better. <laughs> but, you know, I was thinking like this movie exists and, you know, it was made in 1998 and it, it, it just seems like it belongs to a different Bet arguably better, stranger era of Hollywood where they hadn't quite perfected the sort of mining of IP unto death, like the 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 writing these things into the ground in the way of, well, what could we do that wouldn't trample on the, well, we would make a prequel. We would do a, you know, like, how did Norman Bates get to be this way? Well, we'll do a TV show about the Bates Motel or, you know, they just announced, well, we'll do... Camp Crystal Lake before the Friday the 13th, you know, there's like, they've become, it's become so cynical and so craven and they're so good at it now that there's almost something to be said for like the weirdest 
possible expression of that impulse or like trying to like, you could almost argue for this movie as almost like a mockery of that impulse or like an attempt to deconstruct that. Now I think it would need to be a better movie to really make that argument, but you could, you could, if you wanted to, you could kind of argue for the movie on those terms because it is not um, like it, I, I don't think it's trying to be like a, a, a purely like satisfying, entertaining thing for like, you know, like, well, if you love Psycho, you'll love Bates Motel. If you love Friday the 13th, you'll love Camp Crystal Lake. It's like if you love Psycho, you'll love Psycho exactly the same, but with not as good performances <laughs> and ugly garish colors and a hideous Bates Motel and Bates House. It's boring. It's like. This is the this is not a good sales pitch. And in a way, like I almost respect the movie perversely for that very uh, quality. You know, you you mentioned Philip Baker Hall's Seinfeld character earlier, but there's a you know, there's a line the George Costanza line that I often think of in terms of movies, not necessarily like this psycho, because there's no other movies like this psycho, but like, you know, there's a line that George has about a a woman that he's obsessed with she hates him. I think it might be uh, Jerry's girlfriend in one episode and she doesn't like him. And he becomes consumed with an obsession about her because she doesn't like him. And he says, this woman hates me so much. I find it irresistible, you know, something like that. And that's (laughs) kind of how I feel about psycho. It's like, this movie (laughs) doesn't want you to like it. It's like daring you to hate it. And there's something to be said for that. You know, it is not uh, like, puppy dog eyes looking at you going, look at me, aren't I so clever? And isn't it this so much fun? It's like, it doesn't have that energy that so many movies these days have. And so in a way, it's like, there's kind of like an FU energy to it that I, I kind of have to respect. Like, I don't, do I have to like it? No. Do I have to respect it? I, I kind of do. <laughs> I Almost in spite of myself. Man. I'm totally with you on this. I do get like a perverse, like kind of pleasure from this, just kind of being shameless and exposing itself for what it is. Like, and it's not trying to hide that. Uh, the only thing I could like compare it to is the way the Brady Bunch movies worked, right? Which they, rather than updating the Brady Bunch and trying to spin them in a way to like, all right, maybe kids don't give a shit about the Brady Bunch now, but how do we make them snappy? How do we make them like so that the kids will think they're really cool now and but they don't do that instead they like throw the brady bunch out in front of you as they were in you know in, in like just letting you sort of make your own decision and what the decision usually is is we just laugh at, at those movies and how silly the brady bunch is and i think it's also kind of interesting and not a coincidence that there weren't brady bunch properties and movies and series after that because it just like bringing them back in that like true to the Brady Bunch way exposed them as just like this thing that we don't really need and we don't really need to remake which is again like kind of pure they did make a sequel but to your point those movies which are the first one at least I've I've seen the first one not that long ago and it's still pretty funny they're so funny Mm -hmm. that is the the Brady Bunch of the 70s existing in the 1990s like the world around them is 1990 but they are still in the 70s and that's kind of the energy of this movie too where Mm -hmm. all the characters look like they just stepped out of 1960 yeah but the movie is is doggedly reminding you several times this is 1998 look at julianne wars 
Julianne Moore's Walkman. <laughs> this is this is the this is modern movie. This is really this is the present. This is we're talking about today. Pay no attention to Arbogast's fedora. This is modern life. <laughs> yeah. So there is that. I mean, when you talk about the Brady Bunch movie, there is a little of that energy. The difference is like the whole joke of the Brady Bunch movie is like, look at how absurd it is to see these people today. Look at how quaint they look. Whereas this movie never sort of uh, winks or laughs at any of it. It takes it all totally at face value, totally seriously. And it reuses all that dialogue and it plays it straight. So it, it's like missing that satirical element. Exactly. That, uh, I mean, I don't think I would necessarily want to see Psycho as a comedy, but uh, perhaps that was the twist to the experiment that was missing. I don't know, but um, that's the that's the thing that makes those Brady Bunch movies work using roughly the same uh, conceit, at least in terms of the look and the feel of everything. Another thing they have in common too is the Walkman is what makes the Psycho remake seem just as dated as the night. You know, <laughs> you would say that the the '60s Psycho would not date. It's not the right word, but you know, this now looks so tied to '98, and it no longer even seems modern the way that we would see it by putting in those kind of signifiers and. It's the same thing with the Brady Bunch movie, too, where you see all they're living in this very like grunge flannel 90s kind of culture, which now makes that the movie itself look like a period piece in, you know, in what they are. And that's just kind of what you, uh, you know, that's just the nature of, of these movies. But it's funny when the original when the film itself is playing with that contrast, whether intentionally or not. And now today there's another third layer of <laughs> of how tied to its time it it was yeah I, I i think i would i would say very strongly that the 1998 psycho feels much more dated than the 1960 yes. psycho but like i i don't think there's any question about that the 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 colors the fashions the walkmen just i mean just making it in color and yes. and having some of the actors seem sort of modern i mean anything in black and white has a kind of timeless quality to it and um you know, I, I, it's funny because they made they made it in the present, 1998. It's taking place in 1998. Just a few years later, this the, the the entire plot would not function in modern times. They basically made a modern remake of it, quote unquote modern, at the very last moment they could because there's no cell phones in the movie. You know, within a couple of years, everyone would have a cell phone. You know, Arbogast's whole the whole Arbogast element is like dependent on. Or, and the Marion element too. Come to think of it, it's all about like she, they she disappears, you know, and it takes a week to realize she's basically gone missing because she doesn't have a cell phone. Like nowadays, if someone stops texting you for twenty five minutes, you think something tragic has happened to them. Like here in this movie, it's like she goes. It takes like a full week before Julianne Moore shows up in Fairvale looking for her, you know, and Arbogast follows her, and then Arbogast goes to the motel and he has to find a payphone to call them. And they're waiting around for his call from the payphone. Whereas now it would be like, hey, I'm going inside the house. OMG, you know, <laughs> Norman is or something like that. And it would, kind right. of, you know, like the text chain would give away Norman Bates's secret pretty quickly. I think The text would be on the screen from the text. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or like he would be, God forbid, using a webcam to watch all of these people. He wouldn't need a peephole. <laughs> so, yeah, there's I mean, it just feels dated in a way because of that it's like it's a modern remake that now 
I mean, it's 25 years later now. I mean, the original movie was 38 years, I believe, between the two. And now it's 25 years after that. So uh, when you make a modern anything, you're sort of you're sort of cementing it into that time and place. And then eventually that time and place will pass by, too. So, yeah. So that's the thing that makes it very interesting to talk about. And perhaps the one thing that Van Zandt does accomplish which is doing an experiment so that we can kind of see the results as scattered as they are, and we can have a conversation like this. I do want to give everyone a chance to say any final thoughts they have and whether ultimately you would or would not unwatch this movie. Um, I want to give Matt the last word, so I'll just start it out um, by saying, in one sense, I wouldn't want to unwatch this because like we've said, there's something almost refreshingly not cynical about this, that this really was, you know, it. As bad as the idea may have been, it was something that he actually wanted to do. He expended a lot of his capital on it. It was widely mocked, and he he took it all in stride. And, you know, to this day, he pretty much just uses that word experiment for it. And so the the sense that this would be, that there is something uh, cynical or depressing going on is not there like it would be today with a typical Psycho remake. The actual act of watching it does start to wear quickly on me. The novelty wears off, I think, relatively quickly. And there are, of course, the problems that it doesn't really commit either to, you know, updating or improving or changing or any of those things. In that sense, I mean, on any normal scale, I would say I would I would probably unwatch this movie. I definitely have no plans to watch it again. Although it really does, every moment of it makes me want to put on Psycho and keep thinking about that movie. So, uh if maybe I could, I could just change watching this into watching the original, because it's it's constantly dangling that over you and making you think about it. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. But what about you, Seth? See, I I definitely fall on a more positive side with this. I do think it's like it's a failure, but it's a very interesting failure, which I think I've that's a mantra I've said a lot on this podcast. And I will continue to say, um, as I, I think it could have been a very boring, like new remake also, <laughs> like compared to what we got here. I do think it probably helped that I didn't watch the remake, the original this time around. So I kind of had like a little bit of a fresh feeling for this. I still had, I, I mean, I've seen the original so many times. It definitely like I, I had it in my mind the whole time and I could remember everything. Uh, I do recommend watching on YouTube the making of, which is maybe even more interesting than the movie, sitting through the whole movie itself. Um, just like it's maybe more interesting to talk about this movie than to actually watch it. Like a lot of experimental things in the world because you see them working through and like it must have been a very fun process, like at least like day to day, because it is very like up for debate. Like every day it was always like everything they approached was like, how close do we want to follow? Do we want to update this? Do we want to update that? Do we want to try this, try it this way, try it that way? Um, I think, again, they should have just done more of that, done more interesting choices. But I I do think it's, uh, it's, it's again, one of a kind. Uh, I can't say I've had a cinematic experience quite like it. In good ways and bad ways. You gotta pick, Seth. You gotta pick. Oh yeah, no, I I I, I like it, but it's kind of bad. There you go. I picked. Yeah, that's what I'll say. All right, so no <laughs> one watch from you. No way. All right, all right. Well, the floor is yours then, Matt. 
Yeah, I I would say pretty much uh, similar things. I mean, I would not un unwatch it. I've I've seen it several times, and uh, I mean, I was the one who willingly chose to watch right. <laughs> it when you asked if I wanted to be on the show, and you gave me a long list of movies. The one that I thought would be interesting to talk about uh, was Gus Van Zandt Psycho. I hadn't seen it in a while, and I just thought, you know, it, I I was curious to kind of revisit it, and. I found that I still did not like it, uh, but I, I, it is a movie that I am always intrigued by to watch because it is, it is unusual. And it is, um, I mean, just the fact that you can call it unusual while also it is, it is, you know, it has the very rare quality of a movie where it is both utterly familiar and so unfamiliar at the same time. You know, it has this, it occupies a very strange space. It's a, it's a remake which we still we get a lot of remakes and reboots even to this day but not like this not uh not in this way not in this fashion and um yeah i, I it's the kind of thing where you can't really like recommend this movie to someone but it it is a fascinating even if failed uh, experiment it really is and um i've enjoyed talking about it i enjoyed rewatching i didn't know if i enjoyed rewatching it but i was I'm not bored watching it either. Like I sit there and I'm sort of struck by it. It is, you know, it is a, it's a very curious object. And, you know, maybe again, like we get so few, like really curious objects from Hollywood, especially these days. Like, sure, you can find a little weird movie anywhere, anytime. There's lots of them every year and that's great. But like the, the studios as, Safe and conservative as they were in 1998, they're way more safe and, you know, in their choices now. And I, I know it seems absurd to say that a remake of, of a famous movie would be a strange or uh, edgy choice. But the way they went about it was very weird and very uh, ill-advised. Ad, Ill <laughs> I mean, so I have a soft spot in my heart for anything like sort of where someone like blows $40 million on a weird ill-advised thing. I don't even know if that was the budget, but you know, I, I, I guess um, that's what makes me say, yeah, I, I would, I have watched it before. I am almost certain someday I will watch it again. It, you know, it, maybe someday my kids, you know, we watch like we watch the real, the quote unquote real psycho. And they say, and I tell them about this one and they want to see it. I'd show it to them and, and uh, be very curious to see what they thought of it. Uh, I think it is uh, an interesting text. I am glad it exists. I'm glad there aren't more of them, but I'm 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 happy to have this one. And if someone wants to make another modern remake of Psycho <laughs> today, I would be very interested to see what that looked like. I don't think it's a good idea, but I would watch <laughs> that movie too. <laughs> oh man, again. All right. Well, that kind of sounds it's, you, you know, you talking about it like that and make me think about our discussion about cats, because that's kind of where we ended up with that, too, that this was such a spectacular failure in a way that you don't often see in an ill-advised way that it was a lot more fun to watch than Space Jam 2. And this is no Space Jam 2. Yeah. <laughs> if I could unwatch Space Jam 2, I would unwatch Space Jam 2. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I would definitely do that. All right. Well, Matt, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This was a really fun conversation and you brought so much to it. Um, I definitely want to encourage everyone to check out Screen Crush. 
Matt is always posting things on Twitter, um, articles and lists and reviews that I always click through to. And I'm just personally a big fan. We are definitely going to be looking forward to Opposable Thumbs. I hope you keep that, 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 that title in some form. But right now, you can get Marvel's Spider-Man from Amazing to Spectacular, which is another really great thing for Spider-Man fans full of artwork and, and interviews and, and all kinds of things. That really is a blast. So I, I want to thank you, Matt. And is there anything else that you wanted to, uh, you know, bring to our attention or, or plug maybe that you have going on like right now? No, no. I think that pretty much covers it. Well, then, uh, yeah, again, thank you so much uh, for giving us your time and for this. And, uh, you know, if our crap paths ever cross again, maybe it'll actually be with a good movie. <laughs> that was fun. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Well, that was a, we did all right, Mark. We had a nice time. It was my, like I said, I, I, I was the one who picked it. I have no one to blame but myself, and I don't regret it. So, but no, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Can we plug my uh, shot for shot remake of The Sweet Smell of Success? <laughs> yeah, sure. Thank you. What I really feel is if you want to see Psycho, it's obvious. Rent the original. Rent the original, you're right. I know this movie will be studied uh, for years to come by film students curious about the experiment. But the fact is, the original Psycho is. It exists. It's, 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 it's a fact. It's a classic. It's There's a nothing to be improved. There's nothing to be improved on. Roger, there are just some roles that you don't attempt. That's right. You do, if there's a role in all of film that you just can't duplicate, it's Norman Bates by Anthony. Everybody Bruce. wants to see it's him. It's like somebody else playing Citizen Kane other than Orson Welles. What's the point? Okay. Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Run, 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 run.